Hi, I'm Jennifer Mulholland. And I'm Jeff Shuck. We're the co-leaders of Plenty. Thanks for joining our podcast, Plenty for Everyone. Each episode, we talk with conscious leaders like you to explore abundance in work and life, fulfillment in head and heart, and ways we can all work together to make this world a better place. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Plenty for Everyone, our podcast for conscious leaders. My name is Jennifer Mulholland. This is Jeff Shuck. We are the co-leaders of Plenty. And Hi, everybody. thrilled to welcome B. Bocalandro today to talk with us about who she is and how she's navigating this time of, of uncertainty and change with an eye towards abundance and goodness out there. We had the pleasure of meeting B at Lantern, our leadership retreat, and we can't wait to hear more about you during this next hour. Welcome, Welcome. B. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm huge fans of everything you all do, as you know, so it's really an honor to have a conversation with you. You are the best. Let's start by... Just will you orient people to a little bit about you, the personal stuff and the professional stuff, what you do, but also where you live, what it's like right now there under these wild conditions. Just tell us a little bit about your scene. Yeah, absolutely. So professionally, I help bring a sense of purpose to any job for anybody. And I work with big brands, companies like PwC and Toyota, uh, HP, IBM, you know, a whole bunch of big Fortune 500s for the most part. And the idea is that people can go home knowing that their, that their day mattered, that the labor that they did made the world a little bit brighter, made someone's day a little bit easier. And not that, you know, they just toiled for no, you know, no meaningful reason. So that's, that's what I do. That's my day job. I'm based in Southern California in a town called San Clemente, which is a wonderful town and is it's kind of a metaphor <laughs> for uh, what we're going through in COVID-19. Because this poor town, like, you know, at first they kept the beaches open. It, this is all about beach, right? Everybody surfs. And like, if you go to the farmer's market, you'll see the, uh, you know, like the, the middle-aged woman with, with the wetsuit holding the, her surfboard while she buys the tomatoes, you know, that, that, that's the, this is, it's a beach town. And so closing the beaches here is, is not eliminating a luxury. It's, it's eliminating where people run, what people do at five in the morning before they go to work, which is to surf and, you know, where people go to think. So anyway, this poor town has it, at first decided to keep the beaches open and then people from other places were coming in and it closed the beaches and then it opened them again. And there's no right decision. <laughs> you know, there's no way to make a decision in this COVID-19 uncertainty that is going to be like, that's absolutely the right decision. Everybody agrees with it. So no matter what they do, it just seems like, you know, when the beaches are open, I run on the beach every day. It seems like people are just doing an amazing job at protecting everybody's six foot 
bubble and you know we kind of pirouette around each other when we run so that no one pierces that bubble we're keeping safe distance and then of course there's a few exceptions and then because of the few exceptions they feel like they have to shut down the beach and i think it's i don't know it's it's a metaphor for how difficult it is to decide what to do what this little town is doing so that's where i live and that's what i do we often talk about Certainly, it's clear in parenting right now that there's no instructions, right? There's no rule book. There's no rule book about what's right or wrong. I love that that point of it's a giant experiment of how to respond in every state, every town, every lifestyle. Because in San Clemente, like the surfing, the beach is part of your lifestyle. It's part of the work and way, if you will. And maybe like seeing that in your own hometown, but also how you're helping clients now, what surfacing is is being present for you as you navigate this responsiveness for your own life, but also for your clients and their finding purpose. Yeah. Now it might, it feels like a giant mystery um, and are curious about what, what's bubbling up for you as being really present as most important now that maybe is not relevant any longer from how things have changed in the past. So my kind of, personal history through COVID-19. I mean, it's funny that, you know, it just, whatever happened two months ago just seems so long ago. But I mean, the first thing that happened, I, I get paid to stand in front of gatherings of people and speak. So that was the first thing to just evaporate. And I just remember in a period of like 72 hours, it's just like, this job is gone and this keynote is gone. And no, you will not be going to Boston to speak here and you will not be doing this. And just my schedule just evaporating into nothingness. And I remember just thinking about my own survival, like, you know, of course, everything that evaporates is also money evaporating. So, and thinking, well, that's okay, B, because you have consulting. So, just do more consulting. So I, I started focusing on that. And then of course that started evaporating as well because, you know, <laughs> we uh, can relate to all of this. It's all way. going to shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Us and 250 million Americans. Right. I mean, there's probably right. 50 million that for some reason have a very different experience, but you know, I think that this, this is the universal experience of COVID, but what was interesting was, okay, so when the consulting started disappearing, really because these companies were putting everybody on furlough and, uh, or, you know, in one case, having to lay off 45% of their workforce. So, I mean, clearly they really shouldn't be working with a consultant. They should be trying to keep their own job. So, you know, that started evaporating too. But in the midst of all of this, what is amazing is that before COVID-19, my job was to work with a tiny sliver of the company. So if the company has like 150,000 employees, the department that works on corporate social responsibility, which is the department that is in charge of the good things that a company does that go beyond the law, right? That's, that's the department I work with. You know, a company of 150,000, maybe there's eight people, right? Those are the people that are bringing social purpose to people's jobs, that are bringing that are bringing the company to a place of like, what can we do, you know, to make the world a better, better place? So in the midst of all this upheaval of like kind of my own little work, you know, just changing dramatically or 
what's happened is that everybody, <laughs> it seems, has become a corporate social responsibility promoter. So, I mean, I know someone, mm. she's in advertising. Okay, this is someone who, like, has, like, no inkling what I do because it is so beyond what she does. I mean, what she does is, is help companies write ads to sell more products so that another company sells less. I mean, that's really the contribution of what she does. And she called me and said, I have this idea for an ad to help people be happy about staying at home and about the sacrifice. And I was like, what? Like, since when are you a corporate social responsibility person? Since when are you somebody that wants to do this? But this is happening all over the place. Like now, everybody's, you know, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people are asking themselves, wait, is all I'm meant to do right now, shuffle paper or yeah. sell more product? Like, isn't there something else that I'm supposed to be doing? Isn't there something? And, and you know, there some people are finding some really creative answers to this. Yeah. And so, and even with those companies that I'm continuing to work with, um, and, you know, some of them are doing amazing things in this, in this crisis, my contacts, my CSR contacts are telling me that they're getting overwhelmed by other employees saying, I have an idea. What if we do this? I, I, what if we do that? What if we, anyway, so it's, it's really energizing. It's, I feel like, you know, welcome everybody. <laughs> so, you know, this is a great space to be in actually this space of, Yes, I have to do my day-to-day job and it might be stocking shelves or whatever it is I do, but I can make this more meaningful. I can do more than the minimal job description or the, yeah. So, so it's, it's been really energizing. Well, that's, I love that point. And that's one of the things that's present for me. And maybe we'll go around the horn and go to Jen too. I, I think that that desire to help is universal. It sometimes gets papered over or, or lacquered over, you know, by consumerism and politics and a lot of things. But I do think it's universal, as is, to link it back to your other comment about where you live. I think the desire to have a common experience is universal. Like, we want to be in it together. What maybe has has changed it feels like it's different than 20 years ago is we're less tolerant of people having different experiences like we want everyone to have our identical experience and then Mm. it's harder to meet people in the middle because it's easier to find people who agree exactly with us and it's easier than ever to block the people who don't agree with us so it's an i that's present for me is this this interesting combination of a desire to help, a desire to be in it together, but maybe not having the right tools to, to find common ground. I, I, what's, your, what's present for you, Jen? Well, along the same themes, I think what we were, Jeff and I were speaking this morning over our standing awesome hour we have every day about just what 
what we're seeing and in our own lives too, and what we're seeing with our clients. So similar be this excitement around people waking up to yeah. how to be of service to create a better world. And that's really how we're wired. Our ethos at Plenty is trying to help other people and companies yeah. find that way. That said, what we were talking about is when we're running so fast and when we're on the hamster wheel, which corporate America, society, Main Street, like oh. we were all running too freaking fast, right? You, when you're in that habitual way of thinking, habitual way of doing, your schedules are full in the same way, you don't, we ha- didn't take time to slow down. Once we were forced to slow down with the, the great pause this last six weeks, what happens is an opening of perspective, like an opening of what is this really fulfilling to me? Is the pushing paper all that I meant to do? Is there a better way for me to use my time? What do I really care about? Or what was I doing? Was that just a total waste? It's not relevant. Yeah. But not only opening up to, like we have space to consider another perspective of how we are doing what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing. But to Jeff, your point also to consider, oh, there may be another viewpoint. When we are running too fast, we're just on a train that is creating a more slick track. Like we're just constantly, it's like the neural pathways of the brain. We're just deepening those pathways so that we always do what we've always done. So we're always going to get what we've always gotten, right? That beautiful quote. And I love getting off the train right now to consider in my job, in my work, in my purpose, in my personal life, like, what am I here to do now? And can I be yeah. open enough to, to the answer that might be a total different way of being of service? You know, I do see some good, good news on that issue of divisiveness that, you know, it's just, we're just so afflicted by it right now. Because I think that at its core, it's about judgment, right? The way I see American society, you know, pre-COVID-19 is we're on, we're, we're on this blessed plateau and we go about our business, you know, we have our morning coffee and we go into work and we, you know, do whatever we do at work. And there's this river that is threading through all of our lives and it's a really nasty river and there's nothing we can do about it because it's part of life. It's this river of suffering and people end up in the river because, you know, they lose their jobs or they're born into the wrong zip code. And it's, you know, no matter how good a job their parents do, they end up getting involved in gangs, you know, that you end up in the river for all sorts of reasons. And unfortunately the river goes to the edge of the plateau anybody who's in the river and it, you know, it just drops off a cliff into, into rocks. It's, you know, if you can't get out of this river, it's, you're going to end up being very hurt and it's going to be very hard to recover from that. And this river's going through our society all the time. In truth, we all have a, a, at least a toe in this river. We all have some suffering at some point. A lot of us are really fortunate that when we fully fall in the river, you know, our family or friends, like give us a a branch 
and they're like, come on out. And, you know, we might be shivering and we might be shaken. And then we go back to what we're doing and we kind of ignore this river that people are falling into. And when we show our compassion is at the edge. It's when someone is homeless and they, you know, they need food. Like at that point, so many things have gone wrong in that person's life. And now we're, we're, we're offering what, what they need to stay alive one more day. We're not even thinking about what they might need to thrive and have a fulfilling life. I think a lot of that is because we're judging people that are, have fallen into the river early on and said, well, you know, first of all, it's not us, thank goodness. And then second of all, it's, uh, they probably did something wrong. You know, it's like that's, that's their own doing, that they can't afford to get uh, health care. That's their own doing, that they didn't go to college. That's their own doing, that, you know, they ended up in jail. So this is where I see the bright spot. And so I think as a society, we pay attention at the edge, you know, when things are really bad. And then at that point, we can't ignore it. Like at that point, you know, we, we're all wired for empathy. At that point, we, we do offer help. But the, where I see the bright spot is, I think this crisis has made a lot of people look upstream and say, you know what? We don't have to wait <laughs> for small businesses to have to fire their own workers. Let's just go. I mean, I'm proud of Congress for Congress saying we're going to give small businesses help right now so that downstream they don't have to fire these workers and they're not on that cliff. And I mean, I think immediately there were so many CEOs that, you know, within days of this hitting the U.S., said, I'm going to get paid $1 today because that's going to help some of my, our workers not end up in the river. And I don't, I don't hear the judgment that we usually have on people who are in the river. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't follow the news cycle, but I usually get it anyway. So I feel like we have, we have dropped a lot of judgment and said, you know what, for whatever reason, if you, if you find yourself in the river or you might be in the river, we're going to help you right now. We're not going to make you go through a ton of paperwork to prove that you're worthy or that you're not going to take advantage of it or that, you know, we're just going to reach out and help. So I feel like we've turned into a society that is kind of more an upstream society, you know, a little bit more like Europe maybe. And I hope that it's not temporary. I hope that we, we stay upstream so that we're, because if you, if you work upstream, there's a lot less work to do. I mean, if you work upstream, you're like, well, let's, I don't care which zip code people are born into. They should have a good school and they should have food every day. And if we stay in this more upstream mindset, I think COVID-19 will have ended up making us a much stronger society. So I don't know. I mean, I, I do see kind of that brightness. I don't know. Do you guys see anything like that? Or do you think I'm just completely deluded? <laughs> I, well, I love that. It's funny that you brought up upstream and we've been talking about that for the last week or so as someone else we talked to brought up upstream the book by Dan Heath and just that idea of looking at root causes. And I was just ranting <laughs> on a call before this to Jen about the same thing about <laughs> it's not just about closing the economy down. It's about 
having a system that couldn't survive being being paused for two weeks. And this, you know, I do think a lot of people are saying like the system seems broken. I also think the system's there because it's really powerful and really attractive. And so I'm, I'm, I think we need people like all of us and, and many others continuing to ask the question about, is this really what we want to go back to? Because I think, the system didn't get in place because, you know, because it was easy to overturn. <laughs> God, it's in place because it's, it's really attractive and it works for lots of people. It just doesn't work for everybody. I don't think it works for a lot of people. I disagree. So, you know, prehistorically, when we went to work, we were bringing down the woolly mammoth with other people. We didn't do it alone. We didn't work for our own salary. And, and then when we brought down the woolly mammoth with, you know, our extended cousins or whatever, we would bring it back for a tribal feast. It wasn't like, okay, here's my part. And it goes in my little ice box like we do now. So I, I don't think that, that that's, I mean, I, I think we think it might be working for us, but I don't think that system of there's just all this hardship and all this, all these afflictions and misfortune kind of threading through our lives all the time. And, you know, with our neighbors and our coworkers and to just ignore it, we're not meant to not respond to that. And in fact, there's tons of evidence that says that when we respond to that, like when our coworker gets the diagnosis of, you know, that eventually because, we are not paying attention to it, might, she might end up being bankrupt. When she gets that diagnosis, if we as the coworker or as the employer, as the manager, or as the local government, you know, do something then, actually, it's really good for us. Like, there's all sorts of evidence that uh, scientists call this pro-social behavior, that when we do pro-social behavior, not only are we happier, we're healthier, our White blood cells are more active. Um, We're less likely to suffer from depression. We actually sleep better at night. So I, I think we might think that the the system that we have works for us, but actually at the most fundamental level, which is like helping us be fully human, so that we go to bed fulfilled, it's not serving us. Yeah. Well, and we're we've been speaking about this for years, you really see it come to life of living through a paradigm shift of the separation, the competition, the siloed pointing fingers. I'm not that, therefore I judge that kind of separation to what's emerging is how do we thrive? And yes, all the evidence is there in a healthier, happier society by really expressing our innate wiring in our DNA as a communal species. Exactly. We are, and that the, the heart of what it means to be communal yeah. is to evoke and be harmonious, to, to exude right. reciprocity, to give, to receive, to not take therefore the haves and the have nots, but to better ourselves and others in the process. And when we extend that care to others, 
it's like gratitude when those acts of kindness, you know, who feels better with acts of kindness, the person doing it. I think one thing that we're seeing in our work, and I'm sure you're seeing with working with other leaders is in this societal shift, we no longer can continue to perpetuate the out there mentality, meaning the judgment's coming because we're judging ourselves more critically than anybody else we could possibly do outside of ourselves. The only way to be in judgment and in separation and in the haves and haves nots is to have that within ourselves. And so as leaders, I think what's happening is we're waking up to say in a question, like, how judgmental am I being on myself? And am I creating that self-shame, that that have and have not, that scarcity, that lack within myself that I am portraying out there. And we're not mm. going to be able to create a harmonious society out there unless we create it within our own way of how we talk to ourselves and treat ourselves. And that's the conundrum of business, work, and personal, right? Where they all blend of how do we create yeah. and leverage the, just it's, it's within us to be communal, it's within us to be healthy and happy, it's within us to have more than enough and to give more than enough. But we can't do that if we're feeling a lack inside. Well, and I think, yeah, to to weave those pieces together, I would say, I, I wasn't trying to say the system works. What I was trying to say is the architects of the system have designed it so it works for the people who built it, right? It might not work for the rest of us and it won't, <laughs> they're not going to go quietly, you know, <laughs> they're not. And even when you look at PPP and the loans and the things that you were talking about, B, which plenty has benefited yeah. from, and I'm so grateful for it. We're going to see at the end of the day, it's predominantly gone to people who already were well off, you know? So I think there, I'm not saying we need to overthrow the government. I think I'm saying that what where where Jen was going is that community might be innate, but we don't really teach it that well. So people like learn it organically, or maybe you learn it on a team yeah. if you're in a sport. Or and I think that's what's what's coming out for me that I will would weave around to a positive is I can look at my kids and see the blush is off the rose for them on a lot of things that they were told were great. You know, they can do their schoolwork in an hour and a half now. They know more about technology than a lot of their teachers do. And so they're starting to ask informed questions in a good way about, well, why do we do it this way? Which I think gets us to what, where you're going about going, solving upstream. And it's going to be that kind of question that I think creates a new system in place of the one that tells us we need to get great A's and we need to show up on time and we need to buy a certain kind of clothes and we need to drink a certain liquid. And yeah. because I, I think it, it has to start from the, the groundswell and by people saying, well, wow, when we help, I never realized that we could all cooperate and learn together, mm-hmm. you know, I think is what I'm trying to weave between Jen, what you just said and be what you said. Yeah, I love the yeah. I love the upstream analogy, B, and really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's poignant and and present. The one other comment I would just say, I'm curious about what you're seeing within your 
colleagues and your clients and your own community about how awake and aware are people to, to see the upstream, upstream signs. Because I love that we're like being pulled from crisis to, well, actually, the cues and the signs were happening way upriver. <laughs> right, but right. The, to right. my point that leaders and people, yeah. we've been running too fast with our heads in the sand so that we haven't like, it's like when you go on vacation or you step away, like you get a new perspective, you have space, you see more sleep, you wake up and you've got a solution to your challenge, right? That, that period of perspective, rest, space helps us pay more attention to the cues that are always, always around and would say that we've seen I think people are waking up to see, I hope they wake up and we want to help them wake up to say the cues and signs were upstream all along. It's just what were we paying attention to? What were we ignoring? Exactly. Frankly, I'm like a data nerd. So yeah, I spend a lot of time like looking at databases and making sense of it and looking at the data now, which, you know, I'm not, not in a, in a rigorous database way, but just kind of observing. I actually think it's still hard to tell because people's energy is so frenetic still. I mean, I think we're all checking up on people and, you know, I have several clients that have had to furlough lots of people, including people I work with. So I check in with them and within the same day, they go from like one extreme of judgment to another extreme of like, personal despair to another extreme of like, oh, I just realized I could help set up a system where these workers that were laid off could take the food to the healthcare workers. So I think it's, I have a hard time reading the the data right now. Unquestionably, our lives have been so compressed it's so busy, you know, it's like we go from like email to meeting to like getting this report done. And I think that that has opened up. And so like, it's a chance for, for things that are truer to us to bubble up. I also think, unfortunately, there's a lot of other stuff bubbling up, like just raw fear and concern over your parent who's like living alone in another city. So I don't know. I, there's just so much going on that I, I can't really tell. I really have like no informed opinion right now, which way it goes. I, I try to focus on, well, let me, you know, all those very real ways of suffering that people have right now with uncertainty and loneliness and concern over, you know, elderly parents and anger at their neighbors for, you know, not wearing their mask. I mean, there's just so much to be upset over and like, and how did we end up here to begin with? What can we do about that? And to kind of try to help people find their own value in contributing, because uh, like you said a little bit earlier, it's like, if they can find a way to contribute, they'll probably go to bed feeling much better. So yeah. I don't know. There's just a lot percolating and I think it's hard to read. B, when you talk, like, I love the point about the data is kind of hard to, be, to look at because it's not settled yet. Like data is only as yeah. as the assumptions that you, we put in it. And yeah. it's often helpful in hindsight, right? The data, you need data in the current 
present to tell you certain insights. And if it's so frenetic, there's kind of like a gathering of the information that has to settle a little bit. In this time of servicing your clients, servicing the CSR departments and the people within them to find purpose, when they are flip-flopping with these emotions or when the energy is frenetic or when the pressures seem all over and the judgment feels real, do you find yourself holding space, helping them, you know, listening to them kind of share all those perspectives? Or do you find yourself asking them some key questions on why their value, what is their value, what their purpose yeah. is now? Or do you think that those questions are too early to ask? I, I love this question because it, it allows me to like brag about people in CSR. Well, here's an example. So uh, this is a senior manager in corporate social responsibility. Uh, she's working from home, obviously. And um, I asked her, you know, how's it going? And she says, oh, my God, I have symptoms. Uh, she's not in the high-risk population, and she's fine. This, this information's a few weeks old. I have symptoms, and so I am quarantined in one room in the house. Like, literally, they bring the food over because she has two young children and a spouse, right? So she doesn't want to infect them. She can't get a test, right? Because, the, the, again, this is old news. So, so she can't get a test because, you know, we are where we are, right? Or we were where we were. And she has her kids. So she goes, if while I'm on the phone with you, B, you hear the pounding on the door, those are my kids going, mommy, mommy, like, are you okay? I need to see you. So, okay. So she is in that reality where she can't, how do you explain to a three-year-old that your mom can't, you know, hug you? Like they have to talk across the, the, the door. Okay. So, I mean, to me, th this is like, I mean, this is hardship, you know? So she tells me this and then Within five to 10 minutes, uh, that story, she is absolutely moved on to, we furloughed this amount of people. We don't have an employee assistance fund. We need to help them. Help me set up an employee assistance fund. There's a problem in Vegas where the food banks don't have enough volunteers because all the companies shut down and a lot of the volunteers came from the, from the companies. It was the companies that sent them. So can you help me like figure out what to do there? And, and so, you know, the corporate social responsibility people, because of what they do day to day, because they go to, you know, they go home or at this point they stay home after they work, knowing that they did their best to make a difference, they're so resilient. Like they aren't the ones that are having the frenetic experiences, emotional experiences, even though their reality is just as tough. So it's, I mean, it's interesting because, I, you know, I, I, I've spent, it feels like I've spent like 80, 81 years writing this book, which I'm finally finishing. And thanks to Lantern. Thank you guys, because Lantern was like one of the things that like really got me on the rails to get this thing finished. But anyway, um, I've been writing this book on, you know, basically it's to help anybody in any job 
bring purpose to their job. And one of the, uh, the key points of the book is that if for no other reason, do this for yourself. Do good for the wor- to the world, for the world, from your job, because your life will be much better. You know, like if for no, for no other reason, start there. You know, that's not hopefully not where people end up, but that's a good place to start. And once you start, you'll get addicted to it and you'll, you'll realize, well, I, I want to contribute every day, even, even though my job is a FedEx driver. Like, how can I do that? How can I have that upstream mindset every day? You know, so that's the book, right? It's pretty much done, comes out in the fall. And the amazing thing about COVID-19 is that what it has made really clear to me is that the people who are emotionally suffering the most through this are the ones who don't have that in their everyday lives. Like the case I just told you, I'm not going to share her name. I shall just change her name to Peggy for the heck of it. She is the typical case of the, of the, of the, employee of the worker who has found a way to contribute on a routine basis and her resiliency is just palpable and by the way she took the test came out negative and she's fine and she can now hug her children so Mm. as we kind of turn into the last act here i almost said this earlier but in that story you shared you used a great word um, a few times you use the word contribute and i think since i was a little pessimistic earlier i'll be optimistic now and say that is one of my hopes for what i see in my kids and what i see at home and what i see in plenty and in the people we're talking to is a revaluation of that term and it's tempting i think for all of Mm. us as entrepreneurs and leaders to not give equal weight to the contributions we make interpersonally and at home and to Jen's point to ourselves. And we overweight contributions that are graded by money and financial reward and material things. And I, what I hope emerges is a change in that. And it gets, gets to your point about helping problems upstream and helping the people around us. But everyone contributes and the contributions we make when we slow down to do homework with our kids. Um, Jen and I talk about this all the time. It, they feel sometimes like such a distraction from what we're supposed to do until you get this wake up call and say, wait a second, that's one of the most important contributions we can make. And I am hopeful that I certainly see it in my, my, my own life right now, that awareness of just because I don't get paid for it doesn't mean it's not important. And honestly, if I do get paid for it, that might not mean that it's worth anything. And, you know, that recalibration of what it means to contribute is important because if we can get there, it means everybody can contribute. Yeah. And everybody is a contributor. And I don't think we value people that way. And we don't value our actions that way. So and yeah. Well, yeah. and that question of like, what's important now and what's important to me, that's where the, it crosses of that everybody has a contribution. And 
what is our unique way to contribute? What's our unique way to be of service that feels authentic to what's in our hearts, to what we care about, to where we lean in, to what we're passionate about? And I love that question of, you know, it it reminds me, Jeff, of a conversation we're still in dialogue around about how the facade of productivity and how we value what being productive is versus what is is really contributing meaning and value or what's, you know, Jeff, you were using a word a while ago around what's constructive. And really, like we've been on this productivity train. And I think that because we're valuing productivity and output, it informs the decisions we make. It informs how I show up when my daughter needs help with her school. And I feel like it's distracting because it's taking me away from my real work, right? That is quote unquote productive and that's not. And then it just throws that, that it's just a false value. Mm -hmm. And it helps us really determine and question now, how can I most be of service? What is the contribution I want to make? What is the contribution I can make given my skills, my talent, my time, and what matters to me most? And I think my hope is during this period of reflection where we can see the behaviors and the habits fall away because they're not relevant now. Or maybe we can just question you know, how we were going about our days at work and were we really contributing in the way that we're meant to now? And does that contribute to a better society? I think all of those questions are really worthwhile to ponder. And how lucky are we that we get to ponder them with people and companies that give a shit about making the world a better place in the first, in the first place. I think you're right. Those are really um, such critical questions. The one point I would add, you know, after taking the 81-year deep dive in, in, in writing this book, is that I think it's, it's great to ponder the, the big questions that you just put out there. But I, I would suggest to people, and again, I have lots of evidence to back this up, that it's okay to answer the big questions with something very small. Like if that's all you can do, if that's the only thing that occurs to you is to do the very small thing, which might be, hey, you know, the FedEx worker who's still working, learn her name. What's her name? So that next time she comes up, you can go, Bonnie, how are you? Like if that's the one thing you do, you are likely uplifting their day. Mm -hmm. And that's already huge. I was once at a, the Dallas airport and I was in line for the security and, uh, and I heard, uh, Jeff, you'd like this, the musician in you. I heard a very quick, like syn- syncopated kind of really hip version of happy birthday. And it was the TSA officer, you know, I mean, he's looking at IDs and the birthdays there. So when I got to the front of the line, I asked him about it and he said, you know, I'm a, I'm a lead singer in this punk band. And so, you know, I like singing, but so I would, I was messing around a few years ago and I did, I sung a very, you know, happy birthday to this gentleman who the way he put it was like, had one of those muscular diseases. I guess he had like uh, mobility problems. Right. 
so I, I sang it to him. He said it was in the evening and I sang him a very short rendition of happy birthday. And this gentleman looked up and said, you're the only person who has wished me happy birthday today. Mm. And so this officer said, once I heard that, I never miss singing happy birthday to a customer that comes through. Mm-hmm. And that's a very small thing to do, but he, he knows in his bones that, you know, he just made someone smile, you know, and even if someone has heard 30 birthdays that happy birthdays that day, the 31st is going to feel great. So if that's all we can do, yeah. that's still a lot. What a wonderful place to, to land on of the, the practical small tip that we all have within us to lean into and to follow that instinctive helping of sharing, of singing happy birthday, whatever it is, of knowing somebody's name. Well, B, thank you so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to to be in conversation and we can't wait to read your book. Can't wait for it to come out. (laughs) My pleasure. How how will people find your book, B? They can go to www.bbocalandro.com and then that website will have more information. It comes out it comes out in the fall. Um, it will be on Amazon. Actually, it's already there. I don't know. <laughs> so if you put uh, do good at work and then something close to my last name, which is Bocalandro, <laughs> um, it will come up on Amazon right now. But you can't order it yet. So thank you both for your contributions out there. I mean, you, you, you guys are a torrent of those small acts routinely all the time. And then... In addition to that, you help in answering the big question. So um, thank you guys for who you are. Thank you so much. Thanks for saying that. Takes one to know one, B. Takes one to know one. Yeah. <laughs> Catch a wave for us out there in San Clemente, will you? All right, I'll do that. Thank you. Take care, you guys. You Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. Join the conversation and learn more at www.plentyconsulting.com dot com.